right. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Longevity Exercise Less is More Teleseminar with John Duyard. Tonight, Dr. John will be discussing what exercise has to do with longevity, which is everything, and how not all forms of exercise were created equal in paving the way for a long, healthy life. As an athlete and an Ayurvedic doctor, Dr. John has experienced firsthand the life-changing benefits of the exercise theory he calls less is more. Discover the exercise method that Ayurveda and modern research agree can tack significant years onto your life. A few notes on how to interact on this call. To type questions if you are watching online, go to lifespa.com and the first article below the banner on the homepage is Teleseminar Longevity Exercise Less is More. This is the viewing page for this call. Here you can submit questions in the gray box or just watch the webinar live. This will also be the page where the replays can be found after the call. Please do not type questions on the YouTube page because we will not see those questions. To ask questions verbally, you need to be listening on your phone. Please call 425-440-5100, pin number 124337-POUNDS, then, to raise your hand, press star 2. If Dr. John calls on you, he will address you by the last name and city or state that your phone is listed under. So make a mental note right now of the name and city or state that your phone is registered as. There's no difference or preference on our side for verbal or typed questions. We spend equal time on both types of questions that come in. The recording will be available tomorrow, and you'll receive an email that will link you to the replay page. Upcoming teleseminars are Love, Sex, and Yoga on Monday, June 9th at 5.30 Mountain Standard Time. You can sign up for any of these teleseminars on our website, lifestyle.com, under the Education tab by clicking Live Teleseminars under the Events column. And now I'll hand it over to Dr. John. Thank you, Jonike. Um, how's everybody doing? Hope you're doing well. Uh, so uh, here we go. Longevity exercise. You know why not, right? Why not exercise for longevity? Uh, you know, um, you know, when you've been around as long as I have, you start thinking, you know, <laughs> why do we have to kill ourselves? I mean, I, I was a, an endurance athlete, Ironman, you know, triathlete. And uh, definitely experienced what it's like to push yourself into extreme levels of sports, and uh, you know. And I have to say that you get addicted to it. There is a certain rush, a certain stimulation that you get when you push yourself really, really hard. And uh, recently, I read a book <clears throat> called *The Rise of Superman*, which uh, which is a book about how uh, this new culture of extreme sports and extreme, extreme athletics is actually something that um, has uh, fascinated us. Uh, they talk about how uh, we idolize these athletes who do such extreme sports, uh, base jumping off of skyscrapers, literally risking your life to experience two minutes of this zone, runner's high, flow straight, extreme hormonal rush that athletes experience, which I want to talk about here in just a second. 
Uh, one of my favorite stories in that book was about a, uh, a guy named Danny Way. He was a skateboarder who skateboarded, uh, skateboard jumped over the uh, Great Wall of China. And they built a, a, a couple hundred foot ramp to jump over the Great Wall of China. Millions of people in China were watching this event. The guy who tried this before actually died. He didn't make it. And um, so anyway, he did this jump. He set up this ramp that was extremely rickety. And he gets up and he gets on the skateboard and he comes over and he jumps over the, the ramp and he came up short and crashed and broke his ankle, tore his ACL and sprained his front foot so bad that he couldn't even actually see, couldn't get his foot into his own shoe, it was swollen so bad. Went to the hospital, doctors wanted to x-ray him and do all these things, and he decided to walk out without getting any of the results. Went back to the ramp and said, could you move it a little bit to the left, to the right, make it just right, and then uh, the next day decided to jump again on a torn ACL, on a broken ankle and a foot that was so swollen he couldn't even see it. So this time he does down the ramp, couldn't even make it up the stairs to get to, to the top of the ramp. He jumps over the Great Wall of China, lands the landing, and makes it. The first one ever to jump the Great Wall of China. Millions of people watching. He's a hero. He's super into it, loves it. And then he decides and he realizes that, and he did this, of course, you know, in extreme severe pain, but he realized that, you know, that ramp, hundreds of thousands of dollars to build. I'm not going to probably get another ramp uh, anytime soon over the Great Wall of China. So he goes back up to the top of the ramp again with help and does the jump again. Only this time does the 360 and lands it again and breaks the record again and does a 360. And then just for the heck of it, does it three more times, risking his life each time for this chemical rush called the zone, the runner's high, the, the, this experience that athletes tend to seek. My first book, Body, Mind, and Sport, was all about re reproducing the zone, but reproducing the zone without killing yourself, without risking your life. What's really interesting about this book, The Rise of Superman, is our fascination. When I tell that story, I'm fascinated by it. I think it's phenomenal to hear about someone doing such an extreme thing. You know, the, the surfers who rode the millennium wave, the waves that were so big that nobody could ever ride them. And, and guys like Laird Hamilton have do these extreme things in the heat of, of risking your life, doing things on a surfboard that were never done before, uh, somehow intuitively, you know, uh, pushing the limits of what the human body can do. And in this extreme state, the hormones are launched. There's chemicals like dopamine and anandamide. Ananda means bliss, and anandamide is a hormone that makes you fully engaged in bliss. It's one that's actually in chocolate. It makes you get blissed out when you eat chocolate, called anandamide. But adrenaline or epinephrine and dopamine, this cascade of hormones that surge into the brain and create this, this brainwave chemistry that creates this zone, this euphoria, and this total experience of mind-body coordination. The athletes, when they tap into it, they long for it. This is something that athletes have longed for for years. When I wrote my first book, Body, Mind, Sport, back in the early 80s, it was all about, you know, the runner's high. Billie Jean King, who did the forward to my book, said, I would transport myself beyond the turmoil of the court to a place of total peace and calm. 
Roger Bannister, when he broke the four-minute mile, said that when he did that, the world seemed to stand still or not even exist. He felt, I said, he said that I felt like I was going slow, that the world didn't even exist as he broke the four-minute mile, ran faster than any man alive. These are, you know, athletes would say, you know, baseballs look like watermelons. They could see the seams on a baseball. Everything seemed to slow down. We now have the science to prove that when everything slows down, the brain waves slow down. They become into a coherent alpha state, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. And there are definitely ways to do it by pushing yourself really, really hard, by going into extreme athletics. And, you know, now with... I was just talking to a friend of mine who, who, who um, works with the company GoPro. And because we have this camera on our helmet and we want to watch and see what we do, athletes are doing even more extreme things than ever before. I mean, base jumping off of a building in a major city like Chicago in the movie Transformers was an absolute, you know, life-risking event to experience two minutes of the zone. When Danny Wei jumped over the the uh, Great Wall of China, he had ten seconds, five seconds, or of this zone. So it has ramped up over the years to get two or three minutes. And now they're actually considering base jumping off the top of Mount Everest. I mean, I guess that's the epitome, right? That's the top of the most extreme. How more extreme can we go? And I brought up this book because as fascinating as these stories are, and as amazing as they are, you have, if you do read the book, you have to promise me that you finish the book and you go all the way to the end. Because what you find out at the end of the book is that most of these guys are dead. And they didn't live long enough to experience it. And even if they did live long enough, this is what their complaint was, their dilemma was that as an extreme athlete, my body as I age, if they got so lucky to age, and this is a fact that they talk about in the book, that a vast majority of these guys are actually literally dead. And that's sort of a sad situation. But if you make it and you live long enough, you don't have the body strength and endurance to, to, to endure the extreme event any longer to produce those hormones to get the juice and you long for that juice for the rest of your life. You have to read the end of the book because when I read that book, I was like, you know, so in a way depressed or blown away by the fact that our culture has gone this far, that our culture has gone this far into, into finding something that is so inherent in human physiology that we can reproduce on a regular basis, which I'm going to talk about, that we're willing to risk our life for it and push ourselves to extremes for it. And I think we can do better. We can do way better. And this was the premise of my book 20 years ago, the Body Mind Sport book, that I want to re-enliven that and talk about longevity exercise. Exercise is going to make you not only live longer and happier and healthier and actually live, but more importantly, actually experience that euphoria that these athletes so desperately seek. I call it they're experiencing the illegitimate zone, the zone that is not sustainable, and it's absolutely not sustainable. Um, my friend who works with GoPro is lamenting about it. He knows so many of these guys who are just not alive any longer, these GoPro athletes, these extreme athletes. It's a real fact 
And our culture is addicted to a chemical called dopamine. First and foremost, dopamine is the I gotta have it right now hormone. I need it right now hormone. And I have to get that extreme uh, sport, that extreme exertion, that exercise high, that post-exercise endorphin rush that I feel rushing through my veins that makes me feel satisfied. I long for that experience and I'll do anything to get it. I get it when I drive by a Starbucks and I see the Starbucks logo. My brain goes, oh, I can get stimulated from that drug, that coffee. And I, my brain starts thinking, I got to have it right now. And next thing you know, you're driving out ordering a latte. You have no control over that. When you go shopping and you start shopping, it's similar. It's the same chemistry. We've created a culture around this extreme chemical, which is not designed for longevity. It's designed for, for instant and quick gratification with no, no care or concern about the future. It is a I-need-it-right-now drug, and we have all kinds of ways that we get it. Some of you might do it from exercise. Some of you might do it from, from, uh, from you know, yoga or your music or your art or coffee or shopping or work or fame or money or power or a bigger car or a bigger house. Look around you and see if you can identify where you're triggered by this I-gotta-have-it-right-now hormone. This dopamine hormone is a self-limiting hormone. The more you stimulate yourself to get it, the bigger stimulus you need to reproduce it again. So you don't get that same high the same day riding the same wave. You've got to ride a bigger wave or a bigger wave. And that's what these athletes talk about in this book is they keep having to ratchet up the intensity to the point where, you know, jumping over the Great Wall of China isn't big enough. Now i got to jump off the freaking Mount Everest with a, with a flying suit on. This is a little bit crazy, right? I know none of you, all, all of you are not like it, but it's a great example of where our culture is going. And there is a better hormone, a one that is more sustainable, one that actually can actually deliver uh, longevity and more contentment, and it's called oxytocin. Oxytocin is a hormone that the more you stimulate its production, the more you get. It delivers satisfaction and joy and euphoria in the same way that dopamine does, but the more you stimulate the dopamine, the more broken down those receptors are, the more of a stimulant you need, the more coffee you need, the more drugs you need, the more cocaine you need, the more stimulant extreme athletics you need, the more shoes you need for your closet, your wardrobe, the more, the more, the more you need. And which is not sustainable. Oxytocin is the loving, giving, caring, bonding hormone. When you hug someone and you care for another or you give to another or you love another or you give of yourself in a way, you produce this hormone called oxytocin. And I'm going to show you in a minute how you can exercise and stimulate this hormone, believe it or not. But this hormone, oxytocin, is the forgotten hormone. It's the one that um, comes when you give yourself fully to another relationship, to your children, to a loved one, to someone that's in need. This produces this chemistry. They call it the philanthropic high, the giver's high. When you give and you care for another, you get super high from it. Many of you, um, I'm sure, remember the movie um, Avatar. And when, um, I forget his name, the, the guy was trying to catch that crazy bird, the banshee, and they were going to, you know, take the first flight and, and uh, 
he's on the top of this floating mountain and, and, he, and he wraps this bird up and this crazy banshee is going crazy and, the, and a theory, or I forget her name, she goes, uh, quickly, the first flight seals the bond, which means that I got to get on this crazy bird and I got to jump off this ridiculously high cliff and if I do that and trust that this bird will take care of me, it seals the bond. That is oxytocin. It seals the bond. It's a bond that we create when moms give birth, when you marry a, a, a someone and you give yourself fully. It creates a chemical, hormonal bond that is, that is lifelong. And that bond provides a level of euphoria that is permanent. We can stimulate and reproduce that by, by re- allowing us to experience silence versus activity. We are stimulating this high by stimulating more activity, being better at dodging refrigerators in the winds of the hurricane. What if we were to actually figure out a way to get inside the eye of the hurricane, where it's calm, and then sit in the eye of the hurricane and be the governor of the winds of the hurricane, as opposed to being a victim of the flying refrigerators in the winds of the hurricane? I think one provides longevity, and the other one clearly doesn't. So how do we become the eye of the hurricane? How do we create more calm? And when you dive into the eye of the hurricane, that's a level of silence. That's, that, is this, that produces the chemistry, chemical hormone of oxytocin, that bonding euphoric hormone. And the more you go there, the more you produce. So we have to train ourselves to do that. And there's many ways to do that. You can meditate. Uh, we're actually getting ready to launch our... our, our, our um, our transformational awareness technique meditation course, which is all about about Ayurvedic psychology and meditation and transformational action to dip into that silence, which is very, very important. But also, you can do with exercise. When I first wrote my book, Body, Mind, and Sport, we did research on, on nasal versus mouth breathing exercise. And we found that when you people breathe through their nose, something interesting happens. There, the, the air goes into the nose through these turbines, little turbochargers in the nose, and it drives the air all the way down into the lower lobes of your lungs. And the lower lobes of your lungs is where most of the oxygen is. It's a well-documented fact. You have 60 to 80% of the potential um, blood supply for oxygen exchange in the lower lobes of your lungs. So when you breathe through your nose, you're naturally breathing deeper into the lower lobes of your lungs, accessing more of that oxygen. When you breathe through the mouth, you're breathing in the upper chest, and you're breathing only in the upper chest. The lungs are a gravity-fed system. So when you breathe, all the blood goes to the bottom part. So if you're breathing like a rabbit, little tiny shallow breaths, then you don't activate the oxygen. You don't exchange the oxygen in or get the waste out nearly as well. Many of us don't realize it, but our lungs and our breathing, which we do 26,000 times per day, is one of the major waste removal channels in our body. And, and I talk about this a lot, that in our body from the perspective of longevity, it's how well you move waste out that's going to make or break you. It's our inability as we age to move waste out of our body that's critical. Our skin starts to 
breakdown and wrinkle. Our intestinal function starts to go south. We don't poop good. Our lymph gets congested. We start to swell. Our joints start to ache. Our skin begins to wrinkle. We, we start having breathing difficulties. Our ability to move our waist out goes south. Breathing is one that you do 26,000 times a day, and I would venture to say that most of us don't do it efficiently. And we want to, I want to teach you tonight how to make darn sure that you know if your breathing is 100% efficient. And if you're breathing into those lower lobes of your lungs efficiently, you're not only moving waste out better because you're exchanging air into the lower lobes of your lungs where 80% of your blood is, you're also activating something, I think, which is, even, which is very cool. You're activating the nerves that predominate the lower lobes of your lungs, which are calming, parasympathetic, rejuvenative nerves. In other words, they are the calm, you know, life is not an emergency nervous system. If you saw a bear in the woods, for example, you would take a <gasps> upper chest gasping breath. That would trigger an emergency response and tell you that, Life's an emergency, and there's a bear chase, and you get up, you know, say, you know, run up a tree and save your life. So as you huff and puff, you're triggering this emergency response. And what we're trying to do is to actually uh, convince the body the war is over. That exercise does not have to be a a no pain, no gain experience. Another version that we're seeing growing out of control in our culture is this thing called CrossFit. Usually you see old warehouses on the corners of some place with these people with doing extreme sports with big tires and big ropes, pulling crazy things, doing extreme athletes. The amount of injuries that are kind of being publicized as a result of CrossFit are off the charts. Again, we're looking for this extreme thing. How far does the pendulum have to shift to the extreme before we realize that that we can live, do better, be more efficient, enjoy exercise, be more active and effective and actually perform at a higher level from that composed complex. Let me give you some examples. I mean, um, I worked with numerous athletes in my career using nasal breathing exercise. Scott Jurek, who's one of the best endurance racers on the planet, I'm sure the best long-distance runner on the planet, has written a book talking about my book, Body, Mind, Sport, and Nasal Breathing Exercise. He's all about the idea that less is more. Breathing more efficiently allows you more endurance. Our studies proved that. Um, John Weissenreiter, he was the number one mountain bike rider in America some years, ago, some years back. Now we're talking about breathing through his nose. He said at least 80% of the time he was able to breathe through his nose and still compete at that high level. That's a level of extreme efficiency. I worked with the New Jersey Nets for two years. I was the director of player development and worked and taught nasal breathing to the athletes that they could calm down during foul shots and in some cases even on the court to actually create a neurological calm. The more calm you are, the more you play your game, the more you function from within yourself. Billie Jean King, you told me she was now, she was the coach of Martina Navratilova, and we would get her to breathe so she would stay more within herself. These were, you know, experience after experience after experience. I saw athletes, you know, Olympic trial cross-country ski racers being able to cross-country ski sports you would never expect to be able to nose breathe with were showing that they were able to become efficient nose breathers. Why nose breathing? 
when you breathe through your nose, the air goes into the lower lobes of your lungs. It's directed there. It goes through these turbinates. 80% of your blood is there. You get rid of waste there. When you huff and puff and run out of gas, it's because you're not getting rid of the waste as efficiently as you could. It's not because you are not getting enough oxygen in. It's because you're not getting the oxygen out. And so it's the waste building up in your body that causes the, limita- the limitations. So you, you don't need to breathe through your nose to get enough oxygen in. You need to breathe through your nose to get the waste out. That's a really important point because if you go talk to your medical doctor, they're going to say, oh, it doesn't matter if you breathe through your nose or your mouth. It's true. From the getting the air in perspective, that's true. But getting the waste out, not true. We have in a rib cage that has ribs in it that should be like 12 levers massaging your heart and your lungs 26,000 times per day. But when, you're, when the rib cage becomes tight because you're only breathing into the upper lobes of your lungs, when the rib cage becomes tight because you're stressed out or emotionally stressed or even traumatized, then the rib cage literally becomes tight, forcing us into breathe into the upper lobes of the lungs, triggering upper chest receptors where the fight or flight emergency receptors live. And those fight or flight emergency receptors tell your body that your life's an emergency, 26,000 breaths per day. And in that emergency, 26,000 times a day, your body's saying store fat, crave sugar, shut down your lymphatic drainage system, um, uh, trigger a host of degenerative stress-fighting chemicals, cause acidity in your stomach, cause the inability for your body to sleep through the night, and handle stress like water off a duck's back. So when we become stressed out, our ability to live long, our longevity is directly compromised. Stress is, i got to save my life right now. It isn't about living life long. It's about right now, there's a bear chasing me, i got to get up a tree and save my life. It's like when the firemen come in your house and they, they break down windows, tear down walls. They get it, they put the fire out, your house has been safe, but the doors are broken, the windows are shattered, you got some repairs to do, but they saved the majority of the house all as well. It's an emergency response team, and we want to replace that with a calm. Now, exercise is generally, classically, an emergency to the body. And what I want to do is teach you how to do that without the emergency response. Imagine doing the same work uh, as if you were you know, running as fast as you could, but having your body respond to that as a composed, calm experience. That is longevity exercise. Being able to do the same work somebody else is doing stressed out, causing stress-fighting hormones, fat-storing, sugar-burning, lymph-congesting hormones, and doing that without that response and creating a neurological calm, a repair chemistry. How cool is that, right? So um, how we do that, one way, is by breathing through our nose. Now, I got, you got, we have to agree that the rib cage for most of us has become sort of tight and become rigid. As a result of the rigidity of the rib cage, we breathe like rabbits. We don't have access to the lower lobes of your lungs. We have to develop what I like to call respiratory efficiency. It takes a while to get that back. Three weeks usually for someone to rehab and reset their rib cage. That's very, very important. So we did a study on this a long time ago, back in the early 90s, I think it was. And we did brainwave studies during vigorous exercise and a bunch of other studies. And we compared mouth breathing exercise with nose breathing exercise. And this is all written in my book, Perfect uh, Body, Mind, and Sport. 
and I cite all this research and show you graphs and all that kind of stuff. When we had the kids do mouth breathing <sighs> exercise, they're on a bicycle. They did 200 watts of resistance. It's a pretty, you know, fairly sub-maximal, fairly vigorous level of exercise. And we measured their brain waves. And their brain waves went into an, a beta state, a very fast, stimulated state that is indicative of stress. They're called beta brain waves, fast brain waves. When they came, same kids came back the next day, we had them do the breathing through their nose. Now, we did teach them how to breathe through their nose, and they had been training for that for about three weeks to give them the ability to be better nose breathers. Because most of us, when we first start to do this, you know, be prepared to suffocate a little bit because you're going to stink at it. We don't breathe right, and we've lost our ability. Our rib cage has become a cage, squeezing on our heart and our lungs, and we have to get that to open back up again. So that takes a little bit of practice. We gave them three weeks to practice that. They came back to the exact same next day, same workout, with their mouth closed, and their brain slipped into an alpha state, a brainwave coherent alpha state. We measured all the different parts of the brain, and all the parts of the brain were doing the same thing. That's called brainwave coherence. And the brainwave slowed down. That's called alpha state. It was the exact same brainwave you would see in someone meditating that we produce during vigorous exercise um, using their breathing through the nose that created a neurological calm, a meditative brain during vigorous exercise. So imagine running as fast as you could or almost as fast as you could, with your brain producing the same chemistry as if you were in a meditation. Now, how cool is that, right? Now, that same brainwave pattern, the alpha state brainwave pattern, is the exact same state that researchers are now proving that these extreme athletes get when they jump off a building on a base jumping suit, risking their life <clears throat> to get it for two minutes. Now, we got bursts of that for 10 minutes during sub-maximal exercise just by breathing your nose. You can get that also by closing your eyes and meditating. This is, you know, sort of, you know, unpopular because it's not as, you know, you can't tell great stories about, you know, hey, that was really cool. I meditated today and risked my life. You know, it's not the good stories around the dinner table or at the bar, but it's sustainable and if you're doing it for the true addiction to the experience of, of inner brainwave mind-body coherence, which was actually yoga, yoga is that exact union that we produce, that's what you can get. Now, here's something that I thought was even more cool, right? Yoga is the coordinated experience between mind and body, the union, right? In Ayurveda, we talk about that union as the coexistence of opposites, that the body is in dynamic activity and calm at the same place. You're in a dynamic pretzel-like posture, but you're breathing in such a way that your nervous system is in an alpha state, and you're experiencing this composure and calm. That is the coexistence of opposites, the union, the yoga that athletes see. My best race was my easiest race. I, I, Billie Jean King said, I, I transport myself beyond the turmoil of the court to a place of total peace and calm. It's always the dynamic activity coexisting with the calm. That's the euphoric place. That's what athletes are trying to see, that seek, and that's what they risk their life for. In our study, we measured both nervous systems, the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system. Normally, or maybe abnormally, during exercise, the sympathetic nervous system goes north, 100% maxed out. It's a full-blown emergency stress, 
from which we must recover. So if you break the body down, it'll recover, and it'll be ready the next day to, to be handle a little bit more work. That is the, the primitive model that we've been using forever in terms of exercise. Break my body down to build my body up. I think we can do better. Because we now know that when, when our study, we showed that when you break your body down, the sympathetic break your body down, emergency chemistry, adrenal hormone, dopamine activators are all maxed out. But they're unsustainable at that level. So the parasympathetic during that workout, it zeroes out. So when you do regular conventional <gasps> huffing, puffing, upper chest, emergency response exercise, the sympathetic fight or flight goes 100% and the parasympathetic goes to zero. When we did our exercise with nasal breathing, we found that the parasympathetic didn't zero out. It only went down 50%. And the sympathetic, instead of going to 100, only went up 50%. So what we had, which I thought was the best piece of all, we had both opposite nervous systems coexisting. We proved that you can experience the coexistence of opposites. Dynamic activity of one nervous system activated with the composure and calm. Sympathetic and parasympathetic coexisting. How cool is that? We measured, in addition to that, the um, the, the uh, Borg scale of perceived exertion. We measured how ex intense they felt during the workout. We measured... Um, there, on a scale of 1 to 10, how they felt, basically. A 10 was the worst you could feel, and a 0, you didn't feel anything. So when they were doing the <sighs> huff and puffing, mouth breathing, guess what happened? They, they all felt they were maxing out at a 10 out of 10. Their brain waves were in full-blown beta stress state. Their fight-or-flight nervous system was at 100%. When they breathed through their nose, the perception of the same workout instead of 10 out of 10 was a 4 out of 10 and they were doing the same work. So imagine now you're doing the same work running next to the same the person running just as fast as you are only they're pushing, huffing and puffing at a 10 out of 10 of their exertion and you're doing a 4 out of 10. Now let's plug that into the rest of your life. How about breathing in an efficient manner creating a neurological calm that allows you to handle your life stress at a 4 out of, out of 10 versus a 10 out of 10. Exercise becomes a model for handling the stress in your life which makes longevity exercise a tool for longevity in your life, not just exercise. This is a model for how to live your life, exercise being just an example of stress. How you handle that stress will determine how you live. Are you stressed out, enduring life, recovering after every workout, recovering after every day of work, recovering on the weekends, or is your life an experience of composure and calm? Living in the eye of the hurricane, the bigger the calm, the more powerful the winds. Just think about that. That's the law of nature. The more calm you can become, the more powerful you can you can be. The more, the faster that you can run because you're, you're hubbed in an experience of silence. That's a law of nature. I mean, the sun sits in the middle of space and planets spin around and the sun sits still doing nothing, accomplishing everything. Atoms sit still. In the nucleus of atoms sit still with electrons spinning around it, sitting there, accomplishing everything, doing nothing. We, if we can get into the eye of the hurricane, take that internal composure and calm, we can experience composure and calm, the eye of the hurricane, and accomplish everything. 
being an extreme athlete, athletes are getting glimpses of this extreme brainwave coherence to get two minutes, 15 seconds, 10 seconds of that glimpse and risking their life for it when it is our nature to have that. It is our nature to be that calm. It is not our nature to risk our life to experience a glimpse of this. It's our, it's our nature to experience it on a permanent basis. But yeah, absolutely, it takes some refinement. It takes some work. We have, to, we have to train our brain to go south, to go silent, to be still. And our world, which is full of stimuli, is so difficult to turn it off. And I get it. Why are we going out for more stimulation? I get that. We are easily stimulated. We want to be stimulated. Our nervous system is attracted to that stimulation. And there's all kinds of reasons for it. Our brain is wired for approval. We wanted approval as a young child, genetically, for mom and dad to make sure we didn't get eaten by a lion. And we still are hardwired to get that approval. And as we grew up, we just replaced mom and dad's approval with money and power and fame and extreme sports and athletics and, and cars and houses and shopping. We just replace it with outside stuff. And we have a culture that has been feeding us with that stuff for the last, whatever, thousands of years probably. And we are now in a, in a, a baby in a candy shop. We have no control. We have lost control because we have so much stuff to choose from iPhones, iPads, cell phones, all these things. It's just too juicy to shut our eyes and turn it off anymore. I think the pendulum is reaching the how far it can swing when we have athletes killing themselves to get a glimpse of what they can have if they would just turn down the volume. Now, this longevity exercise I'm going to teach you, it takes a little work. It takes a little discipline, but it isn't hard. I've been teaching this for, for years and years and years. And I've watched people who have difficulty in the beginning become great nasal breathers with respiratory efficiency. It's very, very doable. So in addition to uh, the study that we did, we also measured, we measured a bunch of stuff. I'm not telling you all the details. Um, we measured their breath rates. When they were huffing and puffing, they were breathing uh, at about 48 breaths per minute. Now, the average person sitting down at rest is breathing 16 to 18 breaths per minute. When they came back and closed their mouth and breathed through their nose, and their brainwaves were in an alpha state, and their perceived exertion was a 4 versus a 10, and their parasympathetic was zeroed out, or came to 50%, and their sympathetic was 50%, and they equalized, they coexisted, they were breathing at 14 breaths per minute versus 48 breaths per minute. The average person sitting at rest not exercising is 16 to 18 breaths per minute. So they were breathing two to four breaths per minute doing submaximal vigorous exercise. Four breaths per minute slower than you are sitting in your chair right now. That is how efficient we become. There's an old Ayurvedic adage that says that you are limited in your life by a certain number of breaths. You're gifted at birth. You got 8 million, 6 million, 20 million, whatever it is. I don't know if that's true or not. But it's an interesting concept that they say that you're given a certain number of breaths, so don't waste them. So the idea of exertion and huffing and puffing was so foreign to traditional cultures. Even, you know, um, Plato and Aristotle, they wrote about exercise, and they said only fools overexert. Not that they had all the answers, but, you know, maybe they thought it through a little more then we are a kid in the candy shop just looking for the next stimuli to drive our dopamine a little bit faster, get a little bit more satisfaction so we can go on to the next thing and stimulate ourselves even further. 
when athletes 20 years ago said they would actually give 10 years of their life to win a gold medal, they would take steroids. And if it took 10 years out of their life, they wouldn't matter. They would take the steroids if they were guaranteed a gold medal. That means that people maybe have their priorities screwed up. Maybe we have that a little bit mixed up. So the cool thing about exercising for longevity is it does way more than just give you a good workout. It gives you a taste of the eye of the hurricane, the silence that resides inside of you, that inner composure and calm, that athlete that can stand at home plate and hit the ball with thousands of people screaming at you and not be affected by the outcome. When Ben Hogan, one of my favorite stories, was hitting a golf ball and putting for winning a tournament with 20, 30-foot putt, and as he pulled back the putt, the putter and hit the ball, a train came by and blew the whistle and disturbed everybody on the course, and they were like, oh, my God, he just hit the ball right when the whistle blew. And he sunk the putt and won the tournament. And at the end of the tournament, they interviewed him. They said, Mr. Hogan, what did you think, oh, my God, when that train came by and blew the whistle? And he looked up and he said, what train? He had no idea there was a train. He is completely independent of the field, completely focused on his thing. That comes from establishing the eye of the hurricane, the inner science. And that is what I want you to understand about longevity exercise. That is what makes this special. So how do we do it? Well, we're going to have to learn how to breathe through our nose first. There's a couple of steps in this process. When you exercise, you want to take big breaths deeply in and deeply out through your nose. When you exercise and breathe in and out through your nose, um, you notice that there is a natural space at the bottom and a natural space at the top of your breath. So you breathe deeply in and you deeply out. And notice that there's a space that, that's there. I would also like you to use a breath called Ujjayi breath, sometimes called ocean breath, sometimes called Darth Vader breath, I like to call it, as you exhale, only on the exhale. So you breathe in deeply in, and you breathe deeply out, creating that sort of throat-closing ocean breath, okay? So I want everybody to, to do this with me so I can teach you how to do this correctly. So here we're going to sit up in your chair and breathe deeply in, deeply in, and breathe out, and make that Darth Vader breath deeply in again, and out. Now, notice when you make that breath, notice what happens to your tummy. Your tummy will likely contract as you make that sound. So breathe deeply in and then breathe out. Okay? And now what I want you to do is I want you to try to make that same sound, that Darth Vader, Ujjayi, ocean breathing sound, but don't contract your tummy muscles, okay? So here, try that again. Breathe deeply in. And make that sound, but don't contract your tummy. You may have noticed that you don't have, you don't have any contraction when you make that sound. If you don't make that sound you can't contract your abdomen. So, um, so one of the things that happens when you make that Darth Vader sound is you're creating an abdominal diaphragmatic 
cardiac massage. A abdominal, tummy contracting, onto the diaphragm, contracting the diaphragm, which contracts onto your heart, which sits on top of your diaphragm, and creates an abdominal, diaphragmatic, cardiac massage. On your heart, there's a nerve called the vagus nerve, very important nerve for lots of reasons. Um, it's the highway that your microbes use to go from your gut to your brain, by the way. It's, a, it's the highway that your heart uses to send a message to your brain whether the war is on or the war is over. It's the highway that your, your heart sends to your message that can I be in a calm alpha state or do I need to go into a ballistic fight or flight bear, chase me, get up a tree as fast as you can, save your life, fat store, sugar burn, shut down your lymph, not sleep at night state, all that. So when you um, are, are making this sound, you're creating this abdominal diaphragmatic cardiac massage. Very beautiful thing. And when the, when the uh, vagus nerve is triggered, the brain slips into an alpha state, a brainwave coherent state, a coexistence of opposite, parasympathetic, sympathetic matching in each other state. You are in the zone. You are in what they call the flow. You are in the runner's high and you're meditating. Now, once you create that calm, now all we got to do is build the winds around that hurricane very slowly and slowly build the winds around that storm and fully, over time, become a fully mature hurricane. That's the key. The first step is to create the eye of the storm, to create the calm. So you create deep breaths in and deep breaths out, feeling your abdominal muscles contract the best you can, in and out and in and out, and that creates an abdominal uh, 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 abdominal diaphragmatic cardiac massage and a neurological calm. Notice at the bottom of each breath and at the top of each breath there is a space. I want you to, very important, tune into that space, top and bottom. Okay, because if you lose that space, that means you're going in the direction of a <gasps> upper chest emergency. So we're not going to do that. For a while, for the first five, even for ten minutes, we're going to breathe deeply in and deeply out and deeply in and deeply out and create this neurological calm and this respiratory efficiency. We're going to breathe deep like a crazy person for the first five or ten minutes, exercising very slowly, walking very slowly, jogging, riding your bike very slowly, but breathing very deeply, deeply in and out through your nose, perfusing all five lobes of your lungs, and noticing the natural space at the top and the bottom of your lungs. You're exercising and perfusing your lungs first. Do that for five or ten minutes, step one. Step two is to begin to go a little faster. As you begin to run a little faster, ride a little faster, if you're on a treadmill, I always say, increase the elevation of this treadmill, you know, two degrees of elevation every 15, 20, 30 seconds. And, and every time you increase the elevation or run a little faster or ride a little harder, watch the space between the breath. As you begin to go a little faster, if that space between each breath starts to get short, you're going in the direction of upper chest breath, upper chest emergency, activation, fat storing, sugar burning, lymph congesting, disease producing response. We don't want to go there. So soon as you go in the direction of that emergency breath, you go, wait a minute, I'm going a little faster. I lost my space between the breath. I got to slow down. This is the key to the whole thing. 
most people don't tune in to that space. We're so used to going to our what are called it's called our blood lactate threshold, where we push ourselves to a level of exhaustion that we don't notice this very very non-exhaustive transition from total comfort and calm to the beginning of an emergency. How it works, you want to know the details. I know a lot of you guys have been waiting for this information for a long time, so let me give you the details. When you're at rest, your body is reconverting lactic acid on the muscle site back into energy or glycogen right there. It's called a form of gluconeogenesis. The body can make energy on the spot. At a certain point, if you increase the exertion more and more and more and more, the body can't reconvert that lactic acid and reconvert it to energy. And it starts to send that that toxic lactic acid and other waste products back into the circulatory system, back into the heart, and back into the lungs. And the lungs go, "Uh uh-oh, we got waste that I didn't have a minute ago when I was breathing deeply in with a nice space between the breath because I could do it comfortably. Now all of a sudden, I got to breathe a little faster to do what? What your lungs primarily do, which is pump waste out. And now all of a sudden, I got to breathe faster. And when I'm breathing faster, I'm in the beginning of an emergency response. Now, most of us are trained to continue to breathe in that emergency response until the body builds up so much toxic waste that the lactic acid builds up to such a point that we can't get the oxygen to the muscle sites any longer and we go into what's called anaerobic exercise, which means zero oxygen. We are in a full-blown emergency state now. That's the blood lactate threshold. So we're trained to train to that point of full-blown, all-out emergency. And I'm saying if you pick up the emergency when it first starts, you can get underneath it and create longevity exercise, create the eye of the storm, the calm. So how do you do that? As soon as you begin to see the breath rate get a little faster, you slow down. That's pretty obvious, right? You slow down. And the, the key, and the thing you've got to keep asking yourself along the way, as you're increasing your exertion, am I breathing the same comfortable rhythm with the same space between my, in my breath as I was in the beginning? And your body will probably say, nope, I'm not. I've trained people doing this for years, and I would always come up to them and say on a treadmill, are you breathing the same now as you were a minute ago when you were doing your warm-up? And they were going, nope because we don't tune into this place. We have to re-learn uh, what, what that experience feels like. And once you tune into that, you're golden. So what you do is you slow down and you reestablish that calm. And then and that original breath rate, the long, deep in, deep out, space between the breaths. Once you get that calm there, go faster again. And what's going to happen if you're on a treadmill and you can measure it, you'll see that now I would go every two degrees, every 30 seconds, and I'm at, say, six degrees. My breath rate gets shorter. I slow down, reset my original breath. Now I go back up. I'm doing 10 degrees of elevation. What just happened? I improved my ability to perform, handle stress from a composed, calm place without the exertion. I just improved my performance with the same exact breath rate. At 10 degrees, I get a little labored. I slow it back down, reset my original breath rate. I try to go faster again. Now I can go to 12 or 13 or 14 degrees of elevation. You will see that progress. And that is the proof that you need to see to see that you are improving the ability to function at a higher level 
from a calm place. That the bigger the eye of the storm, the bigger the eye of the calm, the more powerful you can become. And you begin to take that into your runs, into your cycling, onto your treadmill, into your elliptical trainer. Most exercise equipment have some way of measuring performance and you can measure and document your benefits. And then as you continue to do this, there's no limit to how much you can do. You keep going up, and then you, as soon as you feel that breath gets short, you slow it back down, you go up again, you keep doing that. And then you reach a point where you uh, move into what I call the performance phase, which is the runner's high zone phase, and you're already sort of in this sort of zone, preliminary zone state where as you begin to increase your exertion, instead of the breath rate choosing to become faster, the breath rate chooses to become longer and slower and deeper. Now, how cool is that? All of a sudden, you're running as fast as you can. You're going a little faster, a little faster. Instead of your breath rate getting shorter, telling you I need to slow it down, your breath gets longer and deeper and slower. You're in the zone. You're doing less and accomplishing more. You are in that, you know, the, my best race was my easiest race. My Roger Bannister said the world seemed to stand still. I felt like I was running slow. I felt like I, I like the world didn't even exist, he said, when he broke the four-minute mile. These are the experiences you can begin to start to, to, to cultivate in your training by learning how to experience these subtle aspects of the zone, this, this is glimpses of the eye of the hurricane that continue to build and build and build and build. Now, how does it really work? When you go into the exertion and you're breathing through your nose, your body is really pushing the ability to breathe deeper into the lower lobes of your lungs, where 80% of the oxygen, the alveoli, and the potential for more efficient waste removal is there. As you breathe and work harder, you're pushing with your mouth closed, you're pushing into those lower lobes of your lungs. And then when the body goes, I just can't do it, and the breath rate starts to shorten up, bail out, slow down, reset that calm. And then you reset that calm. Now you're in that total calm place. And now you're breathing into what you were just pushing into a moment ago, breathing into the lower lobes of your lungs, creating that depth and that new level of efficiency that you didn't have a minute ago that now you have. And now that efficiency is available, that efficiency to be able to move more waste out better so you can go into the workout as a better waste removal machine. And that allows you to take that jump in exertion. That's how it works. That's why it works. And then each time you respect the limits of your unlimited potential, when the body says, no, this is my limit from the point of comfort, and I go back and I reset and I create a bigger reservoir of comfort and I take that into the activity, I can have eventually a limitless level of experience. Of course, well, you could, you could always you know, push yourself beyond your limits, but the idea is that we can build on a level. I haven't seen a limit if you continue to build on this. It just takes discipline, really, and it takes patience. But again, we live in a world of stimulation, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like the pendulum has to start to swing back to wanting us to go in and create more science than this extreme you know, passion and addiction to outer stimuli that will not sustain us and will only leave us wanting more and more in crazier and crazier ways. Now, the, the last state, that zone state where you're actually, as you're working harder and harder and the breath becomes deeper and deeper and deeper, that's when you have what I call respiratory efficiency. When you get that glimpse, 
you're good to go. That doesn't mean you can never breathe through your mouth. That doesn't mean you can never push yourself beyond and huff and puff a little bit. But if you go for a run, a moderate run or a jog or a hike or a walk, and you have to huff and puff, you do not have the respiratory efficiency that God gave you. You're breathing like a rabbit, upper chest, triggering an emergency response 26,000 times a day, and we can change that. More importantly now, and i got so much more to tell you, but the, the rib cage has this cage-like thing. And when your rib cage becomes a cage, it squeezes on your heart and your lungs 26,000 times a day, and it blocks so many functions. The rib cage is supposed to be like 12 levers massaging your heart and your lungs 26,000 times a day, pumping lymphatic waste from your abdominal from your abdomen, where most of the lymph is around your gut, and pulling that toxic waste back to your heart and get it back into circulation for elimination. If your rib cage is tight and rigid, that ain't happening. Your lymph will linger in your lower legs, in your ankles, in your thighs as cellulite, in your belly as extra belly fat. It will cause problems because your drains are clogged. The rib cage is tied to the diaphragm right under the rib cage, and underneath your diaphragm is your stomach. And your stomach, with the rib cage isn't moving right and relaxed right, and you get a lot of side aches when you run, that's because the rib cage is rigid and the diaphragm is stuck. So when you breathe through your nose, you begin to contract and relax and contract and relax the diaphragm to create elasticity there and function there, but also it frees the diaphragm from adhering to the, under, to the stomach, which is just underneath it. And that can cause all kinds of indigestive issues, uh, hiatal hernia issues, and all kinds of things can, that, can cause, that can be caused by the diaphragm not breathing. I can go on and on about what not breathing does to every system and function of your body, and it's not only indirect pathways. Some of them are extremely direct, what it does to your spine. The diaphragm is connected to your stomach, what it does to your lymphatic system. These are direct pathways that, that and again, lymph is a waste, the number one biggest waste removal channel in our body. And from the Ayurvedic perspective, the study of lymph is the study of longevity. In lymph, the word, in Ayurveda, the word for lymph is rasa, and the study of rasayana is the study of longevity. It's the study of lymph, and exercise done properly is the number one best way to move your lymphatic system. But if you're huffing and puffing and pushing stress, Stress causes your lymph to shut down and break down and become congested, and soon your drains become clogged, your rib cage becomes tight, a cage locking your heart and your lungs, squeezing up on your diaphragm and pulling the stomach with it, causing you to not digest your food properly and compromise the lymphatic flow and lymphatic drainage. These are like fascinating discussions when you understand the mechanics. And when I first started teaching um, nasal breathing in the early 80s, I, people would come back to me and tell me the, my low back got better, my leg pain got better, my neck pain got better, my arthritis got better, my 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 digestive acidity got better, and I was like, wow, and I was like, that's great. I had no idea how that could ever possibly be true, but it was amazing. But I kept hearing these stories. Not to mention, people were like, I feel blissful, and I was like, you know, that is what I was hoping for that we would tap into something on the level of a composure and calm, an oasis of composure and calm that gives us the ability to handle stress much, much, more, much better from a place of composure and calm. Um, so this is sort of uh, the first step in longevity exercise of how to do that. Um, and I have some questions here I'd like to uh, answer here and maybe take some phone calls before we run out of time, which I guess, man, that went fast, right? Um, 
So uh, here's a question from Melbourne, Australia, I imagine. Uh, is there any difference in exercise regimes for people in their late 50s, early 60s? No, not at all. I don't, we don't, we can't, I know you don't, throw in the towel just because you're old. We're old, we're smarter, we have more wisdom, it's way better. Um, and hopefully you're not thinking so much about, you know, base jumping off of Mount Everest anymore. You're thinking about making it last, right? So you have an advantage in that department. But there's no difference in terms of how you do it, that's for sure. Have you got, this is from uh, uh, Camberwell. Um, uh, it's the same guy from two different places. Uh, have you got any views on altitude training? I'm using a facility in Melbourne which simulates altitude conditions such as uh, you'd experience in Colorado. Oxygen levels are down to about 12 to 13 percent in a special room even though the actual training session is about 30 to 40 minutes in the room is more challenging. I'm 61. I'd be interested to hear your views on, on this type of training. There's no doubt that if you train in an oxygen deprivation state like in Colorado, you're going to build, you're going to build more blood cells and you're going to have better you know, capacity to carry more oxygen, deliver more oxygen, and better oxygen to carry more waste. So you're going to be a better machine, a better uh, oxygen delivering machine, and a better waste removal machine. I don't think that it is required unless you're training to do an event at altitude. I don't think it's required to do that because, you know, we, we, we live where we live and we adapt to where we adapt, but the body can for surely adapt to that, and you can trick the body into doing uh, some of these training events in that regard. Any suggestion how to keep your nose from running? Uh, well, yes. Uh, when you first start breathing through your nose, you're gonna, your nose is got mucous membranes, and most of us aren't used to breathing through our nose, so a lot of that uh, mucus, the air going in and out, irritates it and run, creates a runny nose. We have an oil called nausea oil that you can put in your sinuses and you, and you can uh, sniff it, a couple of drops into your nose and you sniff it. It's a sesame-based herbalized sesame oil that has slimy herbs cooked into it that lubricate the sinuses so they don't get irritated by the, the, the nasal breathing. So that can be very, very useful to help your nose from running. The Breathe Right strips where you stick them onto your nose, it's like a little metal band when you stick it down. It wants to pull your nose passages open, and that creates uh, a 30% increase oxygen flow. And that actually, um, uh, interestingly, works really well in the beginning when you're turbinates are yucky and your sinuses are clogged and you haven't used your, your breathing apparatus for many, many years. We now know that nasal breathing exercise increases what's called nitric oxide, which is a molecule that won the Nobel Prize as the molecule that was the panacea that cured everything. And it was produced in one study during nasal breathing exercise, but it wasn't produced during mouth breathing exercise. I thought that was a pretty cool study too. So that's pretty cool, making a molecule that heals just about everything by breathing through your nose. So that's, you know, worth doing. Um, uh, hi, Dr. Jard. I am doing intermittent fasting and only eating uh, an eight-hour window lunch and dinner. Can I exercise in the morning without eating anything and still fast until my lunch break? I have done that, and I think it all depends on your blood sugar. Can I basically not eat in the morning and exercise and work out? When you exercise this way, you slip into fat burning way quicker. We know that moderate, non-exertion, non-stress exercise forces fat metabolism. Fat's long-lasting, stable fuel. If you do the old-fashioned workout, push-push, that triggers an emergency adrenaline, sugar-burning fuel. It'll leave you depleted and hungry and craving all kinds of food. Studies bear that out for sure. But nasal breathing, non-exertion, moderate exercise forces fat metabolism directly. 
and intensity of exercise is indirectly related to fat burning. So the higher you exercise, the more intense you go, the less fat you burn. That's sort of how it works. So yes, as long as your blood sugar is able to handle that, it's completely fine. Um, I think you have said that higher power workouts bring more hunger. I just, yep, just said that. Uh, have you also heard that after such workouts, one should only consume protein for an hour? Maybe this reduces the desire for sweet, sugary foods. Uh, like to comment on this. There's no doubt that your hunger hormones, your ghrelin hormones, become stimulated after an intense, you know, mouth breathing exercise. Your leptin, which which suppresses appetite. Um, is or it is inhibited, which which makes you continues to allow you to be hungry. So there's all these hormones that kick in after intense workout that make you hungry, and you can eat more protein to replenish the muscle damage that occurred from your break your body down to build yourself up exercise for sure. You can do that, and it will replenish them, and it will help stabilize your blood sugar as well. But I think a better way to do it is not incur the damage in the first place and actually use your nasal breathing as a monitor of how much exercise is good and how hard you can push without breaking yourself down to build yourself up. It's way more sustainable. And use this workout to, to kind of get you there. Um, so, I, I, But, yes, I think that, that you're, uh, you're absolutely right. A couple of uh, people on the phone here, if you have any questions, please press star 2. And uh, I'd like to answer some of your questions. And um, as I'm waiting for the star 2s to come up, I want you to also... Um, uh, um, think about going on my website and reading an article that I wrote called the 12-minute uh, workout. Because the next step after you become a good nasal breather is to actually go into what's called uh, uh, fast twitch muscle fiber activation. You know, if you uh, to kind of finalize this this discussion, um, if you ask a 12-year-old, "Hey, when was the last time you ran as fast as you could?" They'll say, "Well." Uh, I ran over here as fast as I could. If you ask a 50-year-old, hey, when was the last time you ran as fast as you could? They're like, I was like, I think I was 12. Um, we, as we age, don't use our muscles in the same way as young children do. Young children are using fast-twitch muscle fibers all the time. We're using slow-twitch yoga-breathing muscle fibers all the time. Works great, but it doesn't activate fast-twitch fiber. Fast-twitch fiber does something magical. It increases fat burning. It, 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 uh, it decreases what's called insulin resistance. In this world of blood sugar epidemic that we have, our muscles, the big gas guzzler for your sugar, they get so much sugar from the sweets and the carbs that we, that we can't handle. The muscles are the first ones that go, I can't eat any more sugar. Stop it. And the muscles won't take the sugar. And they become insulin resistant. So your big gas guzzler for sugar says, I won't have it. Now it lays in your blood, goes into your brain, causes all kinds of problems. So if you, if you were to use fast-twitch fiber and you go as fast as you could, that drives the sugar into your bloodstream and breaks down insulin resistance. Increases, um, it increases cholesterol burning. It increases um, fat burning. It increases brainwave uh, or uh, mental capacity and brainwave capacity or, or brain function capacity, uh, cognitive capacity. So it has all kinds of studies and, of course, stabilizes blood sugar. But it also does something else. And this workout that I talk about is the 12-minute workout. I call it chasing the rabbit. It means running as fast as you could for a minute and then stopping. If you were chasing a rabbit, you chase it, rabbit would jump into a hole, you'd wait. You'd come out of the hole a minute later, you'd run after it again, and it would dive in a hole, you'd wait. So these quick bursts of exercise do something that has been measured to be very effective for our health. 
doesn't mean you don't do yoga, you don't do long, slow twitch fiber, but you have to activate cardiovascular function. But you don't go on a treadmill for 45 minutes at 80% of your maximum heart rate. That will break your heart down. That will cause damage to your heart rate in the same way we know that heart attack patients have the same damage in their heart as marathon runners after they finish a marathon. It is a damaging experience, not what I would call longevity exercise. Now, I believe that we can exercise at high levels and do endurance athletics and run like the Tarahumara and run long-distance ultra-endurance run exercise by doing it properly without breaking your body down. When they went down to the Tarahumara and they measured them, they went run 26 miles, which was a short race for them. These are the long-distance Native Americans from northern Mexico. And they found that these runners, when they finished their marathon, had the same breath rates, heart rate, blood pressure, blood chemistry as when they started. There was no difference before and after. So I know that we can actually be unlimited in our potential. I'm not saying that we should be sit around and do nothing and, and meditate and, and not exercise hard. We have the capacity for anything, but you've got to be smart. You can't be primitive and just beat yourself up and break yourself down and build yourself up. You're limited by how much stress that you can endure. You can't keep doing it. You're going to break down. Some of us get lucky and can do it longer than others, but sooner or later, like all these elite athletes, when you can read that book I was talking about, they're like, I, my body can't take it anymore. I can't get to that place to stimulate that juice any longer, and I'm feeling literally depressed. And my life has become depressing because I can't go there. I miss that piece. I can't get it anymore. And I'm saying, maybe we can go a completely different direction, go inward instead of outward, to experience that same thing. So the 12-minute workout is what's based on this concept of heart rate variability. If you get your heart rate up for a short period of time and then rest it and goes down low, the variability of your heart rate, how high it can go and how low it can go, is a measurement of youthfulness, of anti-aging, of longevity. So if I can get my heart rate to go high and keep my base, my resting rate low, you are youthful. As you age, your maximum heart rate every year goes down a notch. As you age, your resting heart rate keeps wanting to creep up a notch. And soon, we just keep going into this place where we're not around any longer. That's what happens. But if you can train for longevity, train for heart rate variability, by training the heart rate to go a little, to go high for a minute and then recover using your nasal breathing during the time. So it requires a two-minute warm-up. A one-minute sprint as fast as you can. It could be moving two and fish clans up and down like that as fast as you can. It could be going up and down a step. It could be jumping up and down a step. It could be running. It could be on a treadmill. It could be on a bicycle. It could be anything you can do. It can be doing sit-ups, whatever you can muster to get fast twitch activation for one minute and then rest for a minute, nasal breathing the whole way. Do, do that four times with a two-minute recovery. It's that simple. After you have developed and done your, your primary workout which is learning how to be a nasal breather, learning how to develop respiratory efficiency and create and allow that respiratory efficiency to be carried into your daily life. In other words, as you work out, your body's response to stress now isn't to breathe more, faster, and go shallow and trigger an emergency response. Your body's response to stress is to go calmer, longer, deeper, slower, and create a neurological calm, the ability to handle stress from the eye of the hurricane. Now you're witnessing the winds of the hurricane. You're not dodging refrigerators any longer. So anyway, uh, guys, I, I went over and I apologize for that. 
I hope you've enjoyed this understanding of longevity exercise. I have written a ton about this on my website, lots of free articles that you can read about. about and go to our exercise section on our website, course by book, Body, Mind, Sport. I go into great detail into how to do it. If you're really into exercise and you want some really cool stories about nasal breathing and sports, it's my sports book and lots of great stories. Definitely, uh, I talk about uh, the, the last chapter. It's called Jet Fuel, and it's all about how to... Uh, how to take yourself into a competitive level if you want to go there as well with these principles. So uh, thank you all for listening. I I appreciate it very much, and uh, we'll see you uh, next month in our next Telesummer. Have a great night.